Our scripture reading is Exodus 34. Exodus 34, we'll be reading verses 1 through 14 and 27 to 35. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as they came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Open your scriptures, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
for our sermon text this morning. We've been looking at this book and talking about some of the, the personal um, issues that, that Paul was, was facing with this church and, and how he was addressing and responding to those. But, but here in chapter 3, he kind of switches to what we might consider more of a, a theological discussion, and, and some of us kind of glaze over when things get too theological. But really, all of Scripture does teach us about God, and, and it's important and valuable for us to look at theological discussions as well and grow in our understanding of who God is. So as I looked at this chapter, I really gained a new appreciation for the theme of God's glory, um, not only in this chapter, but as it is traced throughout the Bible, and, and the implications that that has for us as believers. So we're only going to scratch the surface of the, the context or the content of this chapter, but we'll, we'll look at some background and try to follow his arguments and get a bit better understanding, hopefully, of the ministry of the Spirit and how we are to experience it in our lives and how it contributes to our transformation. So it, you might be tempted to just kind of write this off as, as theory and what does it matter, um, but it, it really is important because it is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, and it, it's really the heart of how we change. And so if we don't have this, if we don't have the ministry of the Spirit, then, then we don't have Christianity. You know, many people name the name of Christ and, and conform to the religious expectations of their surroundings, but their lives do not bear witness to the transforming nature of the gospel. And the people who are not being transformed are also the people who are bored with Christianity. They're bored with church. They're just waiting for this service to be over so they can get on to other things. And they have no problem skipping church because it really does nothing for them anyway. And they look, more, they look at church more like a vending machine. If, if the content is right, they'll, they'll put in their time or their, their dollar, or otherwise they'll, they'll do some other things. But if you follow these people home, or if you follow them to the workplace, you'll, you'll also find that the way that they interact with others is inconsistent with the heart that is transformed by the gospel. The relationships are not marked by love. They do not have a deep and consistent concern for the well-being of others. Their conversations are marked by criticism or cynicism, and their greatest commitment is to themselves, and they find it hard to serve others cheerfully or willingly. And finally, these people also have minds that are hardened. They do not want to hear instruction or exhortation or rebuke. They do not want to accept any new information. They think they know everything it is that they need to know. And as Paul says, a veil lies over their hearts. Their hearts do not comprehend or see or even look for, much less appreciate, the glory of the Spirit, the freedom of the Spirit, and the transformation of the Spirit. And while on the outside they might look successful or powerful or even religious, they are, as Jesus describes hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So with that optimistic and encouraging introduction, let's look at our passage. I read 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, the whole chapter for context will be focusing on verses 7 through 18. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul here is presenting a clear contrast between the new covenant and the old covenant. And just look at some of the the words that he uses. The old covenant was written with ink. The new covenant is written by the Spirit of the living God. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant is written on tablets of human heart. There's a clear distinction between the old and the new. The way that we come to God, the way that we worship, the way that we are changed is different from what it used to be. Now, he has always called his people to live in faith before him. God always calls us and has always called his people to submit to him as the one Lord of our lives and to love him with our whole being and to live in obedience before him. But now under the new covenant, because of the sacrifice of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit, we are empowered to live not only in obedience to his word, but we are empowered to live free from the law of sin and death. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in Christ, and we live in the power of the Spirit who dwells in us. To listen to some of these other words at at how he describes the Old Covenant, he calls it the ministry of death. It is brought to an end. It is a ministry of condemnation. It has come to have no glory at all. Their minds were hardened. The veil remains unlifted. 
And under the new covenant, it is the ministry of the Spirit. It is a ministry of righteousness. It far exceeds in glory. It has a glory that surpasses. It is permanent. It is unveiled. And we are transformed. So what was it here that that made Paul so determined to make this distinction between the new and the old? They were still worshiping the same God. Why couldn't they just do it the way that they were used to doing it? Why all this talk about heart and life and spirit and glory? I'd like to look at at three key words that I think summarize this chapter, and each one builds somewhat on the other. The, The three words are glory and freedom and transformation. So I'll spend most of my time looking at the theme of glory, but then that will be the basis of discussion on freedom and transformation. So the the constant thread throughout this chapter we see is God's glory. And God's glory was present in the Old Covenant, and it was present in spectacular ways, particularly when God met Moses on Mount Sinai. His glory was visible and powerful, and it was a deadly power. The people of the Old Covenant certainly had opportunity to see and appreciate God's glory. Now, when we see God's glory, it's associated with his presence. And on the one hand, we know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. But at certain times and in certain places, he makes himself visible. He is not only everywhere, but he is here. And and when he manifests his presence, when we see that happening in the scripture, it is usually described as an experience of glory. And God's glory is an expression of his holiness. As John Piper says, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. So God's nature, his his holy um, attribute is what makes his glory so glorious. And and they're, they're intricately connected to each other. So for example, when Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, the seraphim above the throne were calling to one another saying, holy holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God's holiness is what fills the earth with his glory. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they hid themselves from the presence of God. So sin separates us from a holy God. It separates us from his glory. And so as a result of their sin, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. They were driven away from the presence of God. To man's sin drove him out of the garden. It drove man away from God's presence and God's glory. I don't have a definite source on this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't have a record of God's visible, abiding presence on earth again from the time of the Garden of Eden until it shows up here at Mount Sinai. And so God had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he had met them in one way or the other to to make his promise to them and, and the promise to bless all nations of the earth. But it wasn't until hundreds of years later, here when God had delivered his people out of Egypt, that he came to actually dwell with them, and his glory was present in a visible way. 
And so the passage in Exodus 34 that we just read is what Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians. And this was actually the third time that Moses had gone up on the mountain to meet God. The first time was in Exodus 19, and, and God's presence then came down on the mountain. And it was described as thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people trembled. And Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And so Moses warned the people not to get any closer, or they would die. And so then Moses came off the mountain and told the people all that God had said. And in Exodus 24, they promised that they would do all that the Lord had spoken. And then Moses went back up on the mountain the second time to receive the tablets of stone. And this time the glory of the Lord is described as appearing like a devouring fire. And all the people saw it. But this time Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. And it was when the the people of God, the children of Israel, wanted a God that was more accessible. And this is when they built the golden calf and made offerings to it. So God almost destroyed his people right then and there, but Moses interceded for them and God extended his grace. And then Moses went back on the mountain the third time to get the second set of stone tablets because he had broken the first set in his anger at their sin. And this is what's described in in Exodus 34. And he asked God to show him his glory as a sign that his presence would go with him. And so so God's glory passed by Moses while he was protected in the cleft of a rock. And then Moses was allowed to see God's back, but not his face, because it said no man can see God's face and live. And this time, after this experience, um, when, when God had shown Moses his glory, the skin of his face was shining when he came off the mountain. So I think it's hard for us to imagine how, how spectacular and how, how fearful this experience would have been. You know, the closest thing we might consider to comparing it to is the power of a volcano. You know, there, there's something intriguing about a mountain just randomly belching out huge clouds of smoke and fire. You know, there's nothing you can do to control it or to stop it. And most times you can't even predict when it's going to happen. And the only thing you can do is hope you're not in the way when that happens. And if you live on Mole Hill, you might be thinking those thoughts too. But here, after the experience on Mount Sinai, Moses built a tabernacle like God commanded. And then God's glory came and dwelled. It actually stayed on the earth in a a visible way, in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant. And so it describes his glory descending over the tabernacle like a thick cloud by day and like a fire by night. And this glory was in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This was a a visible, manifest presence of the glory of God, and and all of the people could see it. And there were very particular rules about who could come into it, and the Levites were the only ones who could who could be near that part of the tabernacle, and anyone else would be put to death if they got too close. So the tabernacle was um, in place for about 440 years until Solomon built the temple. And then we see in 2 Chronicles 7, while the temple was being dedicated, 
after it was completed, the glory of God came into the temple as fire coming down from heaven. And so in the temple, God's glory resided in the most holy place with a thick curtain in front of it to protect others from being destroyed by accidentally coming into his presence. And the veil here could, was, only, was only breached one time a year when the high priest came in on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice. But in spite of God's glory being visible, and despite a law that described how to live in holiness, the people turned away from God. They rejected his law, they dishonored his presence, and they presumed on God's favor and continued blessing to them. So if you could turn to Jeremiah 7, and he describes some of the judgment that will be coming on them. Jeremiah 7, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Now stop there. So in other words, God is calling out these people for rejecting God's law. They were not loving God first, and they were not loving their neighbor. They were completely disregarding the spirit of of the law, which is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But they still came into this temple to worship God. And they said, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They assumed that because God's presence was in this place, that he would not destroy the temple and that they could always come in and be in God's favor just because he was there. And so they didn't really take seriously the warning that God was going to destroy the temple and carry them out of the land. But God had intended that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as it says in Habakkuk. But instead of his glory spreading across the earth and to the nations, the people isolated it 
here to the temple. And they essentially thought they could put God in a box and live the rest of their lives as they pleased. But Jesus taught that God's presence was not limited to a specific place. When he was talking to the Samaritan woman in John 4, he said, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And when Stephen was taken before the council, they set up false witnesses who claimed in Acts 6, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So they still cared a lot about this temple. And they were accusing Stephen of saying that it would be destroyed. What Stephen actually said then in Acts 7 was, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And so when, when Stephen kind of attacked their idolatrous love of the temple and, and fascination with the temple, this, th- that's kind of what, what flipped the trigger for them. And they, they um, attacked him and, and stoned him to death. So what, what's the, what am I getting at? What's the purpose of this long history lesson? I, I think it's important to realize that the, the hundreds and hundreds, over a thousand years of history that the Jews had, with God's glory being manifested on the earth. And, and this was, was not an ordinary um, religious just you know, expression. This was a, a divine expression of the God of the universe. But instead of being the spark that ignited their ministry of spreading the knowledge of the glory of God over all the earth... Not only knowledge as in information about God, but knowledge as in living before God and others in such a way that his glory was spread through his people. Instead of God's glory igniting his people to do his will, it became something that they became possessive of. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped the place where he dwelled. And instead of honoring God by loving their neighbor, they mistreated and took advantage of others and then came to the temple to do their religious ceremonies and thought that they were still in God's favor. They ignored the spirit of the law while being careful to do some things according to the letter. So Paul tells the Corinthians that this was a ministry of death carved in letters on stone. It was a ministry of condemnation that was being brought to an end. And why was it being brought to an end? Was it brought to an end because it was a failure? Was it brought to an end because God made a mistake? Was it brought to an end because God couldn't keep it together? The answer is no. It was not brought to an end because it failed or because it didn't work. It was brought to an end because it was completed. The old covenant was brought to an end in the person of Christ. The old covenant was fulfilled in the person of Christ. Now, to be fair to the Jews, this was a big shift. 
It was a radical shift. It was a reformation. But to those who had eyes to see, God had been setting the stage all throughout the Old Testament for this to happen. And so when Jesus met the two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, it says that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And in Acts 8, when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert, who's not sure how to interpret what he's reading, Philip, beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus, and the eunuch believed and was baptized. And we know that Saul, the persecutor, knew the scriptures as well as anyone. He says he was blameless in his keeping of the law, but it wasn't until he encountered Christ that his eyes were open, and he became a dedicated apostle of Jesus, spreading the gospel until his death. So Paul says about the followers of the Old Covenant in verse 14, their minds were hardened and a veil lies over their hearts. Only through Christ is it taken away. So the the glory of the Old Covenant, as spectacular as it was, had passed away in light of the surpassing glory of the new. In the person of Christ, God's presence made manifest on earth. God's glory and holiness was walking among us. And ultimately, in Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, God's glory was displayed, not only to one ethnic people group, but to all the world. And so it's as if God's glory to Moses was a hundred watt light bulb in a dark room. And now God's glory through Christ is the sun coming over the horizon in blinding light and illuminating the whole earth. So it says Moses put a veil over his face because of the glory of being in God's presence. There's another veil that was was present in the old temple that the Israelites knew well, and that was the veil in the temple. And it was a veil that separated God's glory from sinful man. And at the time of Jesus' death, this veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Under the law, the veil remains. Under the old covenant, man cannot come into God's presence. But when one turns to the Lord in the new covenant, the veil is removed. The veil separating us from God's presence is torn in two from top to bottom. Verse 17 says, when the spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So what, what is this freedom? I believe when we turn to Christ, the veil is removed and we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. We are free to behold God's glory. This glory was concealed behind the veil for hundreds of years because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, and sin cannot come into God's presence. But as Hebrews 10 tells us, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. The Israelites could see the evidence of God's glory, but they could never directly enter into his glory. They could never look at God's glory because their sin separated them from God. And their sin was not taken away by their endless sacrifices. But in Christ, our sins are removed and we are made holy and we are sanctified. And so for the first time since the Garden of Eden, we can behold the glory of the Lord. Our sin no longer separates us from God. 
we are free from the curse of the law because we are justified by the Spirit. And we are made righteous not by the law, but through faith in Christ. Now, what what is this freedom? Some people misunderstand this to mean that freedom in Christ means freedom to sin or live as you please. But Paul denies that sort of freedom. He told the Galatians, For you are called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And he told the Romans, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So our freedom in Christ and our freedom from the law is not a freedom to live as we shouldn't. It is a freedom to live as we should. Ask anyone who has fought an addiction that has brought pain or devastation into their life what their greatest freedom would be. It is not to have more access to their addiction, but to be free from the bondage that it, that it brings. And if you think that being free from the bondage of religion and rules and expectations is your greatest freedom, you are blinded to the bondage that awaits you. Because in the end, as the Bible teaches, there are only two masters, and you will be serving one or the other. You are never completely free from the spiritual powers that rule the world, but you are free to choose which one you will follow. And in the spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. There is freedom to enter with boldness into the holy place. There is freedom to gaze upon the glory of the Lord, and there is freedom to live above the bondage of sin. And the result then of entering freely into this glory is transformation. Verse 18 is is a key verse, and it's one that we should all have memorized. It encapsulates the Christian experience, and it summarizes the life of progressive sanctification. Unveiled faces, hearts of flesh, open minds gazing on God's glory. Seeing it in specific manifestations of his creation, or experiencing it in personal ways in our lives, or gathering to worship as a body of believers, and increasing in our knowledge of his holiness and glory through his revealed word. God's glory, however we experience it, is the means to our transformation. And the more we look on his glory, the more we are transformed. And so 1 John 3, 2 says, When he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So the more clearly that we see God, and the more that we understand his glory and his holiness, the more our lives will be changed to reflect his nature. But if we lose our focus and turn to gaze on something else, we will not be transformed. You've probably heard that we become what we worship. But John Stone Street said that we also see ourselves in reference to whatever it is that we worship. Or we, are so, we see ourselves in the image of whatever it is that we worship. And so whether it's your, 
favorite hero or your job or your goals. If you're worshiping that, you see yourself in reference to that. And I was listening to a talk that he did on the results of living in a secular society. And he was quoting an author, Henry Grunwald, who describes the consequences of living in a secular culture. He says, when there is no God, there is no wonder or worship when we look at creation. Instead, we seek to control it. In a secular society, we are also dehumanized. We have no identity. And this author says, we have gradually dissolved and deconstructed the human being into a bundle of reflexes, impulses, neuroses, and nerve endings. The greatest religious heresy used to be making man the measure of all things, but we have come close to making man the measure of nothing. And so not only do we have things like abortion being widely accepted and celebrated, the next frontier will be euthanasia and infanticide. So with no creator and no purpose, we are just another creature. And so he says there's also a lot of anxiety and discontentment because of this worldview. And I recently read an article about college kids who say they're not planning to have a family or even save up for their retirement because they're convinced that climate change will end the world before they get old. So that they not only live in a state of, of fear, but they're, they're convinced that a catastrophe is just around the corner. Another result is people are discontent and they're always in a constant state of acquisition because they think getting more stuff will make them happy. And finally, he says that work loses its dignity, that there's no larger purpose in life. Work just becomes a way to get what we want out of life. Now, why do I mention all this? I think these tendencies are true, not only for the secularists, but for anyone who substitutes the glory of God with an idol. For the Jews in the Old Testament, the glory of God in the temple became their idol, and they lost sight of their true purpose as God's people. They went through the motions of worshiping God, but their hearts were far from him. So what are the idols in your life that might be substituting God's glory? What captures your attention? What keeps you awake at night? What makes you angry? What gives you purpose in life? What drives the decisions that you make? What do you think that you really need? What do you really care about? Is it your family, your job, achievements, your status, your church, your retirement? What would your life look like if God's glory was always in focus? What if you saw yourself not in reference to all these other things, but in reference to God's holiness? You know, the, the children of Israel did not have the patience to wait on a God who spoke to Moses for 40 days on the mountain. So they made a golden calf that was immediately accessible. They constructed their own God. And how might the gods that we construct contribute to our tendency to control the world or to be anxious or to be discontent? Do we see others as the image of God that they were made in? Or do they become objects that either frustrate us or assist us in getting what we want out of life? Does the veil of the ministry of condemnation lay over your heart 
limiting your ability to love others truly? Is your mind hardened to the liberating and transforming nature of the gospel? Are you willing to learn more about God and to gaze on his glory? So I would invite you to be intentional about finding ways to behold the glory of the Lord. First of all, through knowing him through his word, because all of our other experience of his glory must be shaped and directed by how he has revealed himself through his word. And we need to grow in our understanding of him. But also open your eyes to the other ways he might be showing his glory to you, whether it's through the ways you have been cared for in your times of need, or through the ways that he has equipped you to care for others in their needs, or through the splendor of creation, or through the blessings of the pleasures that he has created for us to enjoy, whether it's good food or good relationships or just a good nap. Are there things in your life that are competing for God's glory? What are your glory substitutes? What is your golden calf? What is your source of hope or deliverance? Are you free in Christ? Are you in bondage to sin? Are you gazing at the transforming glory of God? Be humbled by God's favor to you and be transformed by beholding his glory. Let's have a song.